0: So here we are in church, and presumably you chose to come to church today. You weren't dragged to church. You weren't coerced or forced to come to church. You're in church today. Many of you have come to church probably thousands of times, I'm imagining, in your lives. Been in church a lot. Have you ever wrestled with the question, like, what is church, though? What is the church? What is this all about? Some would say, well, it's kind of like a Christianized social club. It's kind of like a gathering of people that like each other and like to socialize on Sunday morning because the football game hasn't started and there's nothing good on television. So we just gather on Sundays. It's a social club. Others would think of it more as a spectator sport. Kind of like going to the theater, get to listen to some guy preach, sort of a passive event, listen, watch some people do some good music, and you just sort of observe. It's relaxing. It's sort of a spectator sport, an entertainment venue. Others would see it as a cultural center. It's a place where people with similar values come together to eat and fellowship and express themselves express their common virtues and values to one another. And still others would see it sort of as a university or an educational institution. They just come for the sermon or the Bible study. It's it's a place to learn and grow, understand a little bit more about the Christian religion. But these are all inadequate views of the Christian church. So what is the Christian church? Early Christians sought to wrestle this to the ground in their creeds when they were writing about the nature of God and Christ and spirit and sin and salvation and the end times. They included statements about the church, short, succinct, pregnant statements about the church. The Apostles' Creed says about the church, the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. The Nicene Creed says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. A lot of words in there that are super important. Let me break them down a little bit. The word holy reminds us that the church is not made with human hands and doesn't derive its perfection from human activities. That the center of the church's morality and authority and identity is not in humanity, but in a holy God has holy, made us holy in Christ. That the holiness of Christ applied to the believer. Believers gathered together form a holy entity known as the church. It doesn't mean that we always act in light of our identity. Sometimes we sin, we're unholy. But when Christ looks at his church, his bride, he sees it through the perfection of Christ. And therefore the church is a holy church. It's also a Catholic church. Now, most of us probably have historically thought of the word Catholic in connection with Roman Catholicism. So we think Catholic, well, that's a denomination. Well, it's true that the Roman Catholic church uses that word in the name of their denomination, but it's not their word. Just like baptism doesn't belong to the Baptists and Presbyterian oversight doesn't belong to the Presbyterians. The word Catholic simply means universal. And so with a small c, we would say, yes, we are part of the Catholic Church, the universal church of Jesus Christ. We're comfortable with that language if it's properly defined. It's also apostolic in that the Christian church was founded on the ministry of the apostles in the first century. Jesus didn't found the church himself. He commissioned the apostles to go and preach the Great Commission. And when they did, churches were formed and a church was born. And Pentecost then we would say is the birthday, the official birthday of the Christian church. And so... We come together as a holy, Catholic, apostolic church, but the Creed also speaks of a communion of saints, which is indicative of our relationships. We commune together. That's a term of intimacy. And we commune under Christ, and we commune with Christ collectively. This refers both to our stature as saints, meaning holy ones, perfected ones, not because of our own perfection, but because of Christ's imputed righteousness. We reject the doctrine of infused righteousness, which would teach that much like a hypodermic needle, you get little jabs of perfection through the sacramental systems of the church. But rather that God is engaged in a forensic act, a legal act. He's imputed, he's declared that we are saints, that we are holy ones. This is what we mean when we speak of the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in our historical creeds. So what I would like to do as we enter into this new subject, we've been doing a series on biblical systematic theology, and we talked about theology proper, which is all about who God is. And then we dealt with Christology, which is all about who Christ is. And then a couple of weeks in pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now we enter into ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. What is the church all about? I wanna talk, I wanna share with you four questions or ask four questions and seek to answer them from the biblical text. So most foundationally, when we enter into a new topic like this, ecclesiology, we might want to really make sure we understand what the church is. So what is the church? So in English, we have this word, church, derived from the Germanic languages, but it trails its way back to the first century. And when God delivered to us the 27 books of the New Testament, they were written to us in common language, common Greek, Koine Greek, the language of the people, the language of the Jews and the Gentiles. Pretty much everybody understood it on some level. And the word that was selected by the Spirit of God to describe the church was ecclesia. Ecclesia. Now that word is derived from a preposition and a verb. The preposition being ek, which means out of. And kaleo, which means called. So we talk of etymology, meaning when you, when you, where does a word come from? What are the constituent parts? What's the source of a, of a word? And the constituent parts of eklesia is out called, or we flip it in English because it sounds more right, called out. So the, the literal etymology The root meaning of the word is outcalled. But word, the the meaning of words is not determined by their etymology, by their roots. The meaning of words is determined by their usage in language. So dictionaries always come after usage. You don't write dictionaries for language and then say, this is how you have to speak. People use words organically. They take on meaning and then... Dictionary writers write out the meaning of those words. And over time, when the meaning of words change, you have to change your dictionary. So for example, we would have felt comfortable 50 years ago saying, I'm gay. We wouldn't feel comfortable with that now because it means something different in the 1960s than it does in the 2020s. Words change. So the meaning... Of the word ecclesia in English is essentially an assembly, a, a called out community. And it's applied specifically to the Christian community that is described in the Word of God as the temple of the living God. This is super cool, even from a, a visual perspective. If you go back in the Word of God and you think of God's command for the people of God to build a tabernacle and then temple number one, and then temple number two, these places on earth, these edifices that God commissioned his people to build in order that while God being omnipresent, everywhere present, God would locally manifest his presence and power into a piece of real estate so that we as localized people, we're all localized. I can only be here, I can't be there. I can move over here. But now I'm not there, I'm a localized being and God accommodates our finitude and he manifests himself at various junctures in history, whether it's in a burning bush or at the mercy seat or on the cross, he manifests himself, he localizes himself so that we might understand him better and worship him in a very incarnational way. So in the temple, the temple, when they were being laid out, of course, you'd take a measuring rod and you would measure out the footprint of the temple. And the first task for building these magnificent buildings was to lay a cornerstone. And when the cornerstone was laid, then you could go for it and you could lay the foundation and you could build off the foundation and the columns and ultimately the roof. And then you would add the religious furniture, the labor, the altar, the, the holy place, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. You would add these to the temple, and there's a lot of symbolism, but fundamentally the temples of God's old covenant people were made with what? Hewn stone. A series of human stone hewn stones, arranged, selected, crafted, put into place, and there you have a temple. And God's presence is manifested in that temple, and the people would go and they would worship God there. But what is incredible about the New Covenant community, it's it's almost hard to imagine, but we we are now the temple of God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, the church is called the temple of God. We'll read about this momentarily in in one of Peter's epistles. As we come together in Christian worship, each as a living stone, collectively, collectively, we form the new covenant temple of God. And God, doubt you not it, manifests his presence among his gathered people in a greater way than he does among the scattered church. So this is an opportunity for God to manifest his presence into his people. This is more than just a get-together. This is the assembly of God's church, of the, the temple of God. We're also called in the New Testament the bride of Christ, Christ being the groom. Brides are beautiful. Weddings are beautiful. There's anticipation and new life and love symbolized in the bride and the bridegroom, and we are called the bride of Christ, which symbolizes the beauty of this thing and the anticipation of a life with Christ. And it also reminds us of who the head of the marriage is, not us, but Christ. We're called the family of God. We are the new covenant community. We are the people of God. God has always had a people. Even if it's a small remnant, God has always had a people that represent his purposes in the world. Prior to the Old Covenant, there were faithful men like Seth and Noah and Melchizedek and Abraham There were faithful stewards of God's purposes in the world. They were the people of God. And then we have the Old Covenant community formed from the lineage of Abraham, Israel, God's covenant people. And upon their rejection of the Messiah, God expands his reach into the Gentile territories. And now we have a church that is literally universal, composed of Jews and Gentiles. God has always had a people that are meant to represent his purposes and covenants into the world. Now, due to, unfortunately, due to geographical separation, which was more of an issue prior to this century. But due to geographical separation, the church has divided. Due to past doctrinal disputes, linguistic differences, human rivalry, pride, war, righteousness, we now have various denominations and associations. And so it could get confusing. Like, what is the true church? Which denomination is the true church? Are we the only true church? Is that group over there the only true church? Are they even part of the church? What does it mean to be the church? Is the church just a place you attend? Is it, is it a structure? Is it a facility? Is it a particular branch of Christianity? What is the Christian church? Well, folks, the true church with a capital C is not a denomination. And not all denominations are part of the true church because there are apostate Churches. And there are apostate denominations that are not part of the true church, even though they install the word on the wall of their edifices. But Christ knows her members and her members know Christ. And the church then is a universal enterprise. It exists all across the planet. And it is the living, breathing presence of Christ in the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, it says, As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone, because he is the cornerstone of the church. Without the cornerstone, there's no temple. Without Christ, there's no church. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up on a, as a spiritual house. We're a spiritual house where God manifests his presence. To be a holy priesthood, what do priests do? They represent God. They're God's prophetic voice. They intercede on behalf of. Well, if you're in the church, you're part of the priesthood. All of you. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, we could add, the intermediary, Jesus Christ. That's who we are. It's an amazing thing. This isn't merely an assembly, a gathering, a social club, a bunch of people that like each other, a people with shared common values, a place you attend, a place you drift in and drift out of. This is the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why we assemble incarnationally. Because when we assemble as living stones, we put on display Christ to the world, and he manifests himself in our midst, just as he did in the burning bush, just as he did in the fiery furnace, just as he did at Gethsemane, just as he did at Pentecost. He manifests his presence in and through us. Well, how does one become part of this church? Well, you're not born into it. You might have been brought to a church as an infant. I believe I was. I didn't have a choice. I was taken in my baby carriage, I suppose. But you're not born into the church. You might have attended church all your life, but aren't part of the church. So there's a difference between a collection of people gathered in a church building... And those that are part of the actual church. So let's just suppose, for example, there's four or 500 people in the room. And we say, oh, there's how many people are in the church? Oh, well, there's four or 500 people in the church. But that doesn't mean that all four or 500 people are the church. Maybe 350 of you are the church. The rest are here. We love you. We're glad you're here. You're listening. You're reflecting. You're considering. You're leaning in. You're wondering. You're asking questions. You're watching. You're observing. You're considering. But you're not part of the church because you're sitting in a chair in a church building on a Sunday morning. That's not the church. It's not just a bunch of people in a church building. The church is composed of those that have been regenerated by the Spirit of God who've been born again, who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, drawn by the Holy Spirit into relationship with Christ. That is the church. Those that have been blood-bought by Jesus' sacrifice, those that have repented of their sins, those that have put their faith in Christ, those that believe that Christ is the Son of the living God, those that have staked their righteousness, not on themselves, but strictly on the merits of Christ. That's the church. First Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, the word of God says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There's just one church. You mean there's not like a Jewish church and a Gentile church and a male church and a female church and a. Church for rich people and a church for poor people, and no, it's one church. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The church is a universal spiritual organism. And in that church, there are people of Asian descent. An African descent. An Indo-Pacific descent. People from all tribes, tongues, and nations. The church, properly understood, is the least racial organization on earth. It's composed of people from all tribes, tongues, languages, nations, the poor, the rich, the in-between, those that are enslaved, those that are free, that's the Christian church. The Christian church is not some ethnic group. It's not some socioeconomic slice of culture. It's a universal organism that all have been invited to participate in, having surrendered themselves to faith, And belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now upon conversion, you are then commanded to be water baptized. We see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What is that all about? Well, this is what it looks like. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A disciple is a baptized person. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple is a taught slash being taught person. That's part of discipleship, to teach, to have been baptized. Why do we baptize? Well, in baptism, we declare our new identity as those who have been washed in the precious blood of the Lamb, who have the life of the resurrected Christ in us. His life has become ours. He has borne our sins in his own body on the tree, and we are now in Christ, Our identity is in him. We don't just hang out with him. We are in Christ. His life flows through us. Therefore, we can say in the moment, while it's not yet been realized, I have eternal life. Not I will one day have. I have eternal life. Which one day will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. So no one is excluded based upon their ethnicity, their sex, Males and females are part of the church. Their age, people across the generations are part of the church. Their economic background, people of various financial capabilities are part of the church. Your ability doesn't make you part of the church. Within the church, there are those who are disabled, who have Physical maladies, they're still part of the church. Those who have mental maladies, they're still part of the church. The church is the most diverse and inclusive gathering of human beings ever witnessed in human history. Which makes preaching interesting. Biology teacher is teaching second year biology students is teaching people that have a certain skill set. A kindergarten teacher is teaching a certain age group. When you teach in the church it's an interesting experience because you're teaching people who are very young to very old, various levels of spiritual understanding, different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. But you know what? Even though in and of myself I have no capability to touch down on all those groups, we have a timeless word God's word does not return void and it goes out and does what my capabilities don't allow me to do and it touches people's lives and it transforms and it converts with a power that does not reside in the preacher but resides in the word of God. And that's a beautiful thing, that when we preach the word of God, we can trust that God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish through the proclamation of his word. Even if we don't understand each other even if we may come from different worldview backgrounds, God will do what God will do through the faithful proclamation of his word. However, those that persist in sin or who have not repented of their sins and are living in willful rebellion against God but still claiming to be Christian are not part of the true church. Christian sin, but Christians do not habitually, perpetually sin without repenting. So while we would invite, just as the Jews were encouraged to invite the Gentiles to come and watch them worship, to see their light, so we would invite the proverbial Gentile, the lost person, to sit in our services and to observe, but they're not part of the true church. So the lost are not part of the true church. And those that claim to have been found but show no signs of spiritual life are not part of the true church either. The third question would be, who has authority over the church? Now, this is where Christians differ. This isn't so much of a matter of heresy versus orthodoxy, but it is important to discuss Authority in the life of the local church. Now, we know that the foundational authority of the temple is the cornerstone, who is Christ. And when a different metaphor is used of the church, a flock, sheep, the one who has ultimate authority over that flock is the great shepherd of the sheep, as Christ is called in Hebrews 13.10. So Christ is the great shepherd of the church, He is the great pastor of the church. Not me, not the body of elders, not some bishop or pope. The ultimate shepherd, the great shepherd of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shepherd shepherds shepherds. And that shepherd ultimately shepherds the sheep. So we all look not to an ecclesiastical body or a series of clergymen for our ultimate surrender or ultimate instruction but we look to the great shepherd of the sheep who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, you're smart enough to know that in the human order, in the sociological order, that God delegates authority down to human instruments in various spheres or realms of life. So for example, we affirm that the creational institution, which is marriage, is headed by the husband not the wife. That in God's design, the husband is the spiritual head of his wife. It doesn't mean he's better than her. It doesn't even mean he's more competent than her, but that's his job. And he will call, be called to account for leading his wife in a Christ-like way. And then when that couple starts to have children and there's little babies running around, boys and girls enter into the picture. They're all equally human. They're all equally made in the image and likeness of God. They have equal access to the word of God, the gospel of God, the spiritual gifts. But the parents have authority over the children. This is why God commands children to honor their father and mother that their lives may go long in the land. You must surrender yourself to the authority of your parents until you leave and cleave and start your own family. This is why in civil government, Romans 13 teaches us to honor authority, duly appointed by God. We want to honor state authority. And likewise, in the life of the church, it's not a democracy. The church is overseen by authority structures, by elders, by pastors who are commissioned by God to oversee the Christian church. It doesn't mean they're more spiritual than you are. They have greater access to Christ than you do, or they're going to be front of a line in heaven when you stand at the pearly gates. But it does mean that God advocates for various authority structures, but each of those authority structures has a job description. Their authority boundaries are demarcated by God's word. None of them have the authority of Christ. That's why he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No husband can usurp Christ's authority over his wife, no pastor can usurp Christ's authority over the church, no government can usurp Christ's authority over the citizen, and no parent can usurp Christ's authority over the governance of their children. But when they serve within their boundaried authority, within their sphere, within their domain, good things happen. Life flourishes. There is order in the world. So when it comes to the the church, we might ask: who has authority over the church? Well, God has appointed pastor elders who can be aided by deacons to oversee his church. So a pastor, there's three words that are used in the New Testament interchangeably. Pastor, elder, and overseer. They all refer to the same office. They're not three separate offices. They all refer to the same office. We should use them as synonyms. And these three words delineate an office a specific role within the New Testament church, which is reserved for qualified men. Now, when I say men, I'm not referring to mankind. I'm referring to males. And when I say qualified, I'm not suggesting that every male can hold this role, but qualified males can hold this role. And there are 15 non-negotiable qualifications for that office laid out for us in 1 Timothy Chapter three, verses two to seven. You should read them. If you score an 80%, you don't qualify. If you score 95%, you don't qualify. You have to qualify 15 out of 15 in order to qualify for the office of eldership or pastoral leadership in the local church. Likewise, qualified men or women can serve as deacons in the church, there is an example in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, of a faithful woman by the name of Phoebe, who is called the diaconai. I is the feminine ending of the word deacon. Os is the masculine ending. So there are examples of male and female deacons in the New Testament. And the fundamental difference, aside from those gender qualifications with eldership being reserved for qualified males and diaconal leadership being open to men and women is that while both offices must know the word of God, among other things, but they must must both know the word of God, elders must be apt, meaning capable, to teach the word of God. They don't have to be able to teach geometry, geography, history, science, whatever else but they must be apt to exposit, to expound, to faithfully teach the word of God. So lest you think I'm making this up and would reject it at your peril, let me just show you from scripture where this is very clearly, unambiguously stated. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who was supposed to teach this to other elders. I do not permit a woman to teach... Or to exercise authority. Now, it does not end there. It doesn't say she cannot teach or exercise authority over anyone. But it does say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It doesn't say a boy, it doesn't say a little girl, and it doesn't say other women. But it does say over a man. Rather, she must remain quiet. Now, the passage goes on to say, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's like, Yeah, I guess I can't go with the cultural argument on that. Because the basis of his argumentation is transcultural. He points back to creation order at the beginning of time as the foundation of his argument. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Both are made in the image and likeness of God and both have equal access to all the spiritual gifts and to the full blessings of God. And both are absolutely precious and special in the sight of God. But in God's organizational structures... He has given the responsibility to govern the local church to qualified men. Now, the modern listener might ask the question, what is a woman? (laughs) And that's the subject for another sermon, but I think we know the difference between a man and a woman. Now, does that mean that women cannot be gifted preachers or teachers of God's word? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. Women can be faithful and productive teachers and preachers of God's word. For example, they are instructed in Titus chapter two, verses three and four, to teach and instruct the younger women. The word of God says there, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So can we have a female preacher? Yeah. A female teacher? Yep. Can we have a woman exercising authority? Yes, but there's limits to that. She can teach boys, girls, other women, oversee, shepherd, other women, children, but the word of God forbids in the New Testament church for a woman to do what I'm doing right now, which is instructing men and women in the word of God. Now, in saying that, I'm acutely aware of how odd and strange that sounds in the Canadian culture today. Ask me if I care. Go ahead and ask me. No, I don't care. But I do care for people, and I care enough for people to be willing to call them to covenantal faithfulness. Folks, if the church of Jesus Christ doesn't get basic roles right in marriage, in pastoral leadership, in the home, and in civil government, it leads to chaos across culture. All of these things are tied together. The gender blender, the broken relationships, the dysfunctional churches, the dysfunctional governments. It's a spiritual battle, but in terms of authority structures, it's because they get authority structures wrong. And we have people that aren't qualified, serving in different roles and culture. We have people that don't understand what the boundaries are, the qualifications are, and it's become a nightmarish disaster. So we're doing ourselves a favor and surrendering ourselves to God's word and agreeing together that creatures do not apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. We don't do that because God's word is better than our human ideas. And when we subscribe to God's word, men, women, boys, girls, in the moment and in future generations are blessed. I would guarantee you that because God's word is good. Now, since elders must be able to instruct and oversee the flock, must be able to do that, that's that's one of the qualifications, the 15 qualifications, as I stated already, the office is restricted. So do we have female preachers in our church? Yep, my wife's one, but she doesn't instruct men. Now, within the eldership of a local church, it's totally fine to assume that people are going to have different abilities. So equal office, different abilities. Much like, suppose, for example, a man qualified as an elder at the age of 30 years. He met the qualifications. But another man in the same church had been a qualified elder for 40 years. So one guy's been an elder for a week, one guy's been an elder for 40 years. We would assume that the man with 40 years of experience is gonna be wiser, more skilled, more knowledgeable, more competent than the guy who has been an elder for a week and a half. That's fine. An elder's an elder's an elder. But within an eldership, there's gonna be different levels of experience and there's gonna be different levels of giftedness. So for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, let the elders that rule well And especially those that labor at teaching and preaching, dot, 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 goes on from there to give further instruction. But the thing I want to emphasize there is all must be able to teach, but some will labor at it. Some will do it like I do it, like on a regular, ongoing, consistent, upfront basis. That's fine. It's not like every elder gets equal stage time. That every elder gets an equal number of Sundays. They all must be teaching in some venue, in some context. But we also must weigh out skills, maturity. You're not going to take a guy that's been an elder for a week and make him the chairman of your elders council. You're going to pick someone with a bit of water under the bridge who has a bit of a Papa Bear persona in the local church. That's fine. That's fine. Now, in terms of how churches are organized, I want to introduce you very quickly to three models that historically have been adopted by various churches to organize and govern the assembly. So one would be an Episcopal model. And an Episcopal model, I don't want you to mistake that word for Episcopalian churches, although they do follow that model, but this is just the name of a model of church governance. And that model, Episcopal, the Episcopal model of church governance, is where you have a collection of local churches, and they're not self-governed, as ours would be. They're not autonomous; they're not self-lawed, but they are governed by a bishop or a pope or a cardinal or someone that lives in the Vatican or someone that lives in Toronto or someone that lives wherever. So in Protestant and in Roman Catholic churches and of course in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there are groups that are Episcopal in nature, Methodists historically were Episcopal. Anglicans are Episcopal. Roman Catholics follow an Episcopalian model of church governance. And then under that, you have two other models of church governance, both of which affirm the autonomy of the local church. By autonomy of the local church, they don't mean that our church is autonomous and we don't care about any other churches. But they mean that at the end of the day, each local assembly is responsible to sink or swim to govern its own affairs, to administer the sacraments, to discipline its people, to preach the word of God, to faithfully steward its resources, to send out missionaries. And there's two models under that. One would be called congregationalism. So in congregational governments, the church essentially vests its legislative authority to the the entire membership. So anybody who's in the church has equal authority often expressed in the form of a vote in the life of the the church. A lot of Baptist churches historically have followed this model. Obviously, congregational churches have followed this model. Some Baptist churches have followed this model of congregational government. So what that means is that a person that's been saved for three hours has equal say in the affairs of the church as someone who's been saved for three million hours. And you can understand that that is sounds kind of nice because after all, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we're a family and we all have equal access to God and we're all made in the image and likeness of God. But unfortunately, you just won't find that model in the pages of scripture. Instead, while we would affirm that everyone is equal in Christ and has equal access to the things of God, we would advocate for what's called a Elder governance, or what's historically been known as a Presbyterian model of church government. Not to be mistaken for Presbyterianism, but presbyteros is one of the words that we use for eldership. So a Presbyterian or elder-led form of government is a church that is governed, ruled, led by qualified elders. This is why if you're in that model, you have to get your elders right. Because if you get your elders wrong, you wreck the church. And Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, and churches like ours have historically adhered to that governance model. And may I just say, I have noticed in my tenure, my 30-some, 29 years as a pastor, that it's becoming more common for churches to be led or governed or ruled by elders because I think there's been a renaissance of appreciation for this biblical teaching. Now, these elders must be qualified And then their duties can be distilled down into oversight. They oversee the doctrine of the church, the discipline of the church, and the direction of the church. Let's say you're a very godly man and you have a wife and you have children. You're like, you know, I'm not much into church, so I just stay home when we do home church. Um, That's not a church. That's not a church. Your family isn't a church. Your family can be part of the universal church, but that's not a dually organized local church. A local church minimally must be overseen by two elders, two qualified elders, because the Bible always advocates for a plurality of eldership. Not one super pastor at the top, but a plurality of elders. And those men are called to leave the church, just like a husband is called to leave his wife. Uh, lead his wife lovingly, just like the civil government is called to rule their people benevolently. We don't have a problem with kingship, but we prefer benevolent kings over tyrants, tyrant kings. Nobody wants Edward Longshanks as their king, but a benevolent king would be a pretty good thing. A benevolent husband is a pretty good thing. A benevolent parent is a pretty good thing. A benevolent eldership is a a pretty good thing. So let me take you to an anchor text here. And I've already quoted it, but I'll take you back to it. 1 Timothy 5.17, just to make this point, that the role of elders is not to facilitate. It's not just to recommend or present motions, but it's to actually govern the church. Listen to this strong language. Let the elders who rule well, be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's like, I see it, but that makes me uncomfortable because I came out of a church where the elders you know, were ruling people and dictating. Well, that's a, that's a legitimate concern, and that's why we have another text. We have 1 Peter 5, 3, speaking to the elders. It says, not domineering over those in your charge, but be an example to the flock. So, ruling without domineering is God's paradigm for the church. Benevolently ruling, not tyrannically ruling, not interfering beyond your pastoral duties in people's individual conscientious decisions is God's paradigm for the church. So, my authority with the authority of the other elders in this church, is real, but it's limited. We rule, but we do not domineer. You know, one way of putting it is that a biblical leader in any sphere of authority should have thick skin, but a soft heart. Should be able to make decisions. Should be able to lead should be able to say, no, that's not going to happen. But to do so out of a loving, soft, tender heart for the people they've been called to lead, that that makes a good husband. That makes a good parent. That makes a good pastor. And that makes a good king. So we're pro-authority. We're pro-authority. But it's always authority under Christ, restrained by Christ, and motivated by love. That's a good thing. The fourth question is, what is life like within the church? Well, the church is an organic family. Since the advent of the church at Pentecost, the church's birthday, the church has dedicated herself to teaching apostolic doctrine, to fellowshipping with one another, to baptizing new converts, to celebrating the Lord's Supper, to worshiping publicly, to meeting people's tangible needs. Remember in Act 6, when they had so many people without bread, they organized a team of six godly men. They may have been early deacons. They're not called that. We don't know. But early godly men who would distribute food so that the apostles could go and continue to preach the word of God. And folks, it's through these prescribed acts. They're not optional for Christians. I have freedom in Christ. I don't have to go to church. Nah, no, you don't have that freedom. You have to go. Through these prescribed acts, God channels grace, mercy, the resources of God. To live in rebellion against God's prescribed acts is to cut yourself off from the grace, mercy, and resources that you need to live the full Christian life. I emphasize that because the doctrine of the priesthood of believers in terms of its application has swung way over here into radical libertarianism in many churches where the average Christian thinks, I can do what I want, say what I want, go where I want, do what I want, and no pastor and no church can tell me what to do. That's ungodly and it's sinful. These are not options. These are prescribed by God. Hebrews 25 is not a recommendation. Do not forsake the gathering together of believers, as some are in the habit of doing. Submit yourselves to governing authorities. These are, not, these are not options. Now, within the Christian church, lest you doubt the organic nature of it, we have language like the bride, the body, the family, the house, the temple, the flock. We've mentioned dually organized churches would have a plurality of eldership, who administer the Lord's Supper and practice church discipline, worship, preach. But I want to talk just momentarily about church discipline because it should burden us all that many churches have chosen not to exercise church discipline. Now, what is discipline? Well, discipline is tapping the brother on the shoulder and saying, hey, man, I haven't seen you in church for a while. It's like, yeah, you're right. I need to get my priorities right. Or, hey, brother... How is your marriage? Are you actually leading your wife and your kids? That's discipline. Just those, those gentle nudges, those conversations that we should have, be having all the time. And then height, Church discipline is height. And when someone is living in unconfessed rebellious sin, and Matthew 18 lays the process out. You go to them one by one. You're seeking to restore them. You confront. Give them some time. If he doesn't repent, bring another brother or sister. If he doesn't repent, You take it to the church, and of course, the authority of the church is represented through the eldership. And we're told that what the church binds on earth, God will bind in heaven, where two or three are gathered. That's not about what constitutes a church. That's about literally God acknowledging, it's a fascinating thing, the authority that the church has to exercise church discipline over its members, leading right up to the point of excommunication. So if someone's like, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be schismatic. I'm going to cause division. I'm going to buck authority. I'm going to teach false doctrine. I'm going to live in immorality. I'm going to be inconsistent to the church disciplines. And I don't care what you think. The church is commanded to exercise church discipline. Now, why do we exercise church discipline? To be right? No, to restore. I remember when I was a teenage boy living in a single home, the oldest boy, there was a period in my life where I started lipping off to my mom, showing disrespect to my mom. I was a Christian, but I was being disrespectful, dishonoring my mother's authority over me. And one day I came trouncing up the stairs after school and there at the dinner table were seated two of my youth leaders. I didn't know they had been called by my mom, but they came and they had a very... Blunt conversation with teenage Aaron. And I can tell you, I was embarrassed by it. And in my flesh, I didn't like it. But it benefited me. And I cleaned up my act. What if that hadn't happened? Maybe I'd still be a rebellious punk. Some people think I still am. (laughs) But that benefits us. We're all... We're all adjusted. We're not just adjusted by the chiropractor. We're adjusted by our teachers, our parents, our pastors, police officers. Whenever these people are functioning, not outside of their job description, I'm not talking about doing things they're not permitted to do, but when they're functioning within their job description, that's a beautiful thing. And the the, the elders of a church need to dedicate themselves to church discipline. And we've had to do that many times as an eldership. And you know what makes it worthwhile? Restoration, when people come back, makes it worthwhile. It's very sweet. It's difficult to do. It takes a lot of time. So folks, listen. I want you to listen to this very carefully. A failure to surrender yourself to the watchful care of elders in a local church is to live in rebellion, against God-ordained authority. You're not a lone ranger. You don't get to govern yourself in all areas of life, and neither do I. Even as an elder, I am under the elders of the church. And by the way, church discipline applies to elders. So if I transgress, my discipline's a public affair. Yours might be private for a period of time. My discipline, I get rebuked in front of the church so they might live in fear, a proper reverential awe of God. Now, in conclusion, I want to address quickly the ordinances of the church. So we have believer's baptism. That comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which really isn't even translated into English. It's just transliterated. The letters are just transferred over. It means to uh, to, to dip, to sink, to immerse. It's a symbol of salvation and identification of union, With Christ. Now, the normative mode in the New Testament is immersion. In catacomb art, it was partial immersion. They would walk into the river, they would be baptized and poured from the top down, but it's immersion. So the the normative mode is to get into the water. Now, you could write down uh, Luke 23, 43, John 3, 23 to 24, Acts 2, 4, uh, Romans 6, 1 to 11. These are baptismal texts, and the precursor to baptism is saving faith in the New Testament record. Now, I have paedo-baptist friends that believe in baby baptism. They see there's a covenant in the Old Testament. The initiatory right into that covenant is male circumcision on the eighth day. That child is sealed um, under the faith of their parents. And, of course, they would exercise faith potentially in the Lord at a later date. So they would say that the new covenant is the same we should baptize our babies because it's a sign and seal of the covenant. It doesn't save, but it's a sign and seal under the faith of the parents. And then at a later date, you're confirmed. Well, sounds great. I can see some parallels. I just don't see it in the Bible. In the Bible, I see they believed and were baptized. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The normative mode being immersion. Now, we're not going to get too hung up on the mode. What if someone is very disabled and can't get in the water, Oh, we'll pour them. We're not going to say, sorry, not enough water, you're not legitimately baptized. I heard of a church once, guy goes down into the tank, he's being baptized, he's hanging onto the railing, he comes up, his hands dry. The elders convene a meeting that week and determine that his baptism is illegitimate. And he has to go back in the tank. This is where you elevate mode over purpose. So there needs to be some wisdom exercised there, but baptism is necessary as a sign of membership in the covenant. And then we have finally the Lord's Supper, sometimes called the breaking of bread, the common meal, the Eucharist, which comes in the word Eucharisto, to give thanks for, communion, koinonia, and it's tied together tightly, as Pastor Blake mentioned, to the Passover feast, which was celebrated annually. This is why some churches only celebrate communion annually, because they see it as the replacement of Passover. And others rate through to weekly. The, The New Testament is mildly ambiguous about that. So there needs to be some wisdom and discretion. But the purposes of the Lord's Supper, laid out for us in Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11, include that it serves as a memorial of Christ, it's an identification with the new covenant, which implies it's for believers only. It's a proclamation of his death. It's a proclamation of his second coming. It's fellowship with Christ, and it's a means of grace. Not in the Roman sense of the word, not as an injection. Not like that. Take communion, get a little shot of grace. Get baptized, get baptized get justified. It's not like that. It's not like a hypodermic needle where you're being injected with it. But it's a means of grace in the sense that as an act of obedience, it keeps the door open for God's resources of grace to be channeled into your life. In other words, when you disobey God, he steps back. When you obey God, his resources... Are available to you. Now, you might know that in the Christian church there are various views of the meaning or purpose of the Lord's Supper. There's the transubstantiation view, which is historically held by the Roman church, which means that, which teaches that the elements literally, the wine and bread literally become the body and blood of Christ. And then there is the consubstantiation view, which is held by the Lutherans, which would teach that the communicant, in other words, the participant, actually partakes of the body and blood of Christ in, under, and with the elements. And then there's the historic memorial view held by Anabaptists and many Baptist churches, which would say the elements are merely symbolic. You're just remembering something. And then there is the reformed view, which we would adhere to, or what's also known as the spiritual dynamic view, which would state that the elements are symbolic, but that the dynamic presence of Christ, his grace, is made effective in the believer as he or she participates in the Lord's Supper. Because as we participate in the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're not just remembering. We are identifying with, we are staking our lives on. We are declaring that our life, our whole identity is anchored in, fastened to, nailed to, chained to Christ. And so in that sense, in communion, the presence of Christ is made effective in our lives, meaning it brings an effect And the way we think, we act, and we feel. So we do remember in the Lord's Supper, but we also benefit from it as we participate in the Lord's Supper, and so we should. So brothers and sisters, commit yourself to the church of God. Serve in it. Obey your duly appointed leaders. Discipline one another. Preach the gospel. Baptize converts. Worship God. We are a lighthouse in a very dismal world, and if we don't get the church right, how do we get the world right? If we don't get the church right, how do we get the gospel right? If we don't get ourselves right, how can we possibly preach the full riches of Christ to a desperate world? So I trust that you'll be blessed by these words, and that it will continue to sharpen your understanding of the Christian church and encourage you to participate more fully in